When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week on WealthTrack, the economic story of the decade. In a rare interview with top-ranked economist Nancy Lazar, she tells us what it is. She's next on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. This summer will mark the longest economic recovery in U.S. history. The bull market already made it into the record books for longevity in August of 2018. Well, rather than a cause for celebration, many economists, business leaders, consumers, and investors have viewed these unparalleled achievements as cause for concern. They're thinking this must mean the end is near. Not this week's guest. She has been a believer in the U.S. economy's recovery capabilities since it emerged from the global financial crisis. Nancy Lazar is co-founding partner and head of the economic research team at Cornerstone Macro, a leading independent macroeconomic investment and policy research firm she launched in 2013. She has been ranked one of the street's top economists by Institutional Investor Magazine for the past 17 years, ranking in the top two the past nine years. Lazar was one of the first economists to recognize what she dubbed America's manufacturing renaissance, the re-emerging competitive advantage of the United States as a manufacturing base. And as China's economy slowed and America's strengthened, she saw the U.S. assuming a key role in driving global growth once again, a role ceded to what many concluded was China's unstoppable ascent. Lazar has recently identified another positive structural shift that she is calling the story of the decade. I asked her to tell us what it is. The story of the decade is that U.S. economic activity is getting healthier and that you're seeing an improvement in productivity growth and at the same time an increase in labor force participation. That's crucial to get a sustained low inflationary environment, which means the business cycle can last longer rather than shorter. So that implies that more people will have jobs and at the end of the day, uh, it, it creates a much healthier backdrop. Why is productivity increasing, and and where was it before? For about 15 years, productivity was deteriorating, and it deteriorated because we stopped reinvesting in this country, potentially rightly so. Companies saw, one, there was a really attractive investment opportunity in China. They put a lot of factories investment over in China because it was clearly much cheaper to invest over there than it was here, and then they would re-export. So from their independent business perspective, it was good for these companies. They could support their profit margins, support their stock prices. But if you stop investing in your own domestic economy, what you end up doing is deteriorating your capital stock. You, you really start to slow down the growth of business. And when you do that, you destroy productivity growth. And over time, what that does is then destroys the growth in employment or the breadth of jobs that can be created. And what you and that's exactly what we saw. And what you then in turn saw was a deterioration in employment growth and a deterioration in the real median family income. The right. last expansion, real median income, was basically unchanged. 
when you're talking about reinvesting in this country, for instance, is it is it reinvesting in technology? Is it just reinvesting in building plants so that you're employing more people? When you reinvest in the United States, what that means is that you are you are uh, investing in new factories, mm -hmm. investing in new hospitals, investing in office buildings. Uh, you're investing in technology. It's basically expanding businesses okay. and at the same time making them more productive where you have, can incrementally make some more money so you can in turn hire people. For example, Amazon was going to build a new facility in Long Island City. Right. That's, that's CapEx. That's growing the capital stock. And they were going to hire roughly 25,000 people. Take that idea and expand it. That's what I mean by improving growing capital stock. It's not just investing in factories, it's also building new entities, new businesses that over time indeed can hire people. Right. And so, you know, the question obviously, if you're a CEO, you want your investments to pay off and you want them to be profitable. And so, why are companies now reinvesting in the United States, whereas they did not before? What is the advantage now in investing in the U.S.? So China clearly was the place to put because indeed you saved a lot of money. Costs of doing business in China 20 years ago were a lot less than they were in the United States. Over time, that's obviously changed. China's wages have gone up, their transportation costs have gone up, government regulations have gone up. So actually right now, the cost of doing business in China, and manufacturing in China and the United States is roughly the same. Wow. Uh, as China was increasing its cost structure, U.S. manufacturing companies were improving, lowering their cost structure, improving their productivity. So now, indeed, you can, if you sell it here, one of my mottos is if you sell it here, you, you increasingly make it here because now the cost of doing business in the United States is, is, is lower than it had been compared to, in particular, China. And do you see that continuing? We do, because this cut in the corporate tax rate, if you keep politics aside, has indeed made it, made it more profitable for companies to actually invest in the United States. We had a total corporate profit tax rate of 40% when you look at the federal plus the state and the local, one of the highest in the world. Mm. And so when we saw that cut in the corporate tax rate and at the same time cost of doing business in China going up, net, yes, if you sell it here, you increasingly, you increasingly make it here. Another aspect that you mentioned is that the labor participation rate is increasing. What, what is driving the change in labor participation? And you're specifically citing the labor participation rate on, um, among the uh, prime working age, what, 25 to 54, right, that's really increasing. So if you stop investing in uh, your country, right. uh, then in turn you reduce the number of jobs you need to create. And as you are seeing the deterioration in capital investment in the United States and the deterioration in productivity, at the margin there were fewer and fewer jobs that were net being created and as a result more difficult for people to get jobs and in turn the labor force participation rate deteriorated. It's just as important to understand why it declined mm -hmm. as why it's now increasing. Now that that has reversed where mm -hmm. you are getting an investment cycle in the United States, you are growing the ca capital investment in the United States, net you are creating more jobs that quite frankly are attractive to people and people th that, that the, the breadth of the job market has improved. More industries are hiring a different cohort of a person and as a result it's easier for a broad footprint of people to actually get a job today. And so 
they're rejoining the labor force. Um, it's the biggest increase in the labor force participation rate for prime age workers since the 1980s. Wow. And so there's just magic between this improvement in productivity and uh, the, the increase we're seeing in the labor force participation rate. You know, you mentioned stagnant wages, and I know, mm -hmm. you know I've, I've seen a, a spate of articles over the years about the shrinking middle class and mm -hmm. the fact that wages have been stagnant. Is that changing? It is starting to change. Uh -huh. Now, it's, we're at the very early stages of it. Real median family income, uh, the last expansion, was stagnant. Uh, and then in the recession and into the early stages of this uh, uh, expansion, actually declined. Mm -hmm. And however, for the past four years, as you've seen a broader footprint of jobs, more people able to get jobs. Indeed, real median family income has increased cumulatively 16% since 2015 to a clear record high. Mm -hmm. It's a little frustrating to me that that's not more highly recognized. No. We're now approaching a record of longevity in the economic recovery. A lot of people are citing that as, you know, we've got to be close to the end. Uh, you don't think that that's the case, right? So, so, so tell us why you think that the recovery is sustainable and that these positive trends can continue. Classically, when an economy expansion ends, it's because you have an acceleration in wage pressures and the Federal Reserve has to increase interest rates. There's virtually no pent-up demand, and obviously the backup in interest rates further cuts uh, demand, and in turn, you, you experience a recession. Mm -hmm. What's happening today, again, is because you're increasing l uh, productive capacity and labor supply at the same time, what you're doing is actually keeping inflationary pressures at bay, which is giving, again, consumers more real purchasing power, uh, and in turn, it will help extend, extend the cycle. So lack of inflationary pressures um, and healthy real income growth just increase the odds indeed you do see an extended, extended cycle. And, and one of the things that you've been, you've been writing about and telling your clients about when you've been on Wealth Track have talked about over the last eight years uh, is the manufacturing renaissance, which, which is part of this. Tell us about the manufacturing renaissance, and is, is that continuing? The manufacturing renaissance is a subset of the improvement we're starting to see in uh, productivity in the capital stock growth investment. Capital, right. Manufacturing is not the only thing that drives capital spending, but it's obviously, as you suggest, an important part of a capital spending cycle. And it's related, again, to China. You had this giant sucking sound mm -hmm. where the capital spending or the manufacturing was shifted to China, uh, but over the past... 20 years, U.S. manufacturers have become more productive. At the same time, we have our energy renaissance, where we are energy independent. Right. Uh, and so, at the, and, and at the same time, there's more Chinese regulation at the margin, less U.S. regulation. So again, increasingly, manufacturing jobs have increased significantly. You're going to have volatility in a business cycle, but net, we've had a very, very solid uh, growth in manufacturing related jobs. Uh, the biggest increase we've had in decades, manufacturing jobs, that's further luring a lot of men back into the labor force mm -hmm. who had dropped out of the labor force uh, participation rate. And, and so the manufacturing renaissance is still a very important theme to us, but the capital spending theme is even broader than just manufacturing. It also includes, to be sure, the service sector. Right. And so, so what kind of jobs, when we're talking about manufacturing jobs, uh, you know, I mean, what kind of wages, what kind of benefits? Is it much higher tech? Is it... We, know, we what, have, we've had technological scale? innovation in right. this country forever, for, forever, and that has, to be sure, changed uh, what a manufacturing job is today versus right. when my grandfather came over to this country and really worked in a sweat factory. Mm -hmm. um, and over the past hundred years, the factory today is much more 
uh, technology than, quite frankly, people. Right. But, but that, again, makes it possible for these companies to continue to grow their businesses and incrementally hire more people. So, yes, today a factory will have fewer people than in the old days, uh, but net still they have to incrementally hire people. And mm -hmm. it's not just the factory itself. It's the multiplier associated with putting a factory. They're building a new factory in my hometown in Michigan. There hasn't been a new Flint, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And there hasn't been a they're, and, and they're building a new factory in 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 in, in actually it's Burton, Michigan, uh, which is a sub, small city outside of Flint, Michigan. Uh -huh. And it's the first factory in decades. And in turn, you're going to have to have a reinvestment in that town to support this new factory. And so it's going to only employ roughly 700 people. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's a positive multiplier, gas stations, restaurants, grocery stores, other services that you'll need to support the factory for the people that are going to be working there. So it's actually quite exciting mm -hmm. uh, to see this reinvestment in manufacturing in the United States. What's your forecast for GDP growth for the U.S.? So we're more optimistic than consensus. We have 2.8% GDP growth uh, for this year. Consensus is actually closer to 2%, 2.1, mm -hmm. 2.2%. Why are they wrong and why, why are <laughs> well, we we'll see optimistic? if we're right. We'll Not see right. if we're right. I don't know if we're going to be right, but, <laughs> but we're more optimistic because mainly because of the capital spending cycle, but right. also an incremental pickup in housing. And the consumer's in fine shape. I mean, it's quite frankly the healthiest U.S. consumer I've seen in a long time with a high saving rate. So it's, it's pretty broad-based, but led by capital spending, and, and if anything, else probably a little bit uh, from, from housing. One of the things that, uh, th that has been unusual about this recovery has been the lack of inflation as well. So explain to us why inflation is so low. Yeah. So inflation in the United States is incredibly tame, roughly 2%, um, and we think it's going to stay at 2%. And it goes back to this whole idea of the story of the decade. Mm -hmm. If companies are making themselves more productive, um, and then they, are, they don't have to raise prices as much as they otherwise would uh, if they aren't focusing and investing in technology. And right. the 19, this is not unique. In the 1990s, we had a period of very robust growth, yet inflation slowed sharply because similar to what we're seeing today, mm -hmm. you were getting an increase in potential GDP growth, improving productivity, more labor supply, and that kept uh, inflation very, very low. Uh, Chairman, Fed Chairman Greenspan nailed it. He knew that was the case, and it restrained, he was re very restrained in raising interest rates uh, in 1990, 1996. And so that improvement in productivity, increased labor supply will keep inflationary pressures lower longer, and therefore the Fed won't be under the gun to raise rates. Right. Now, the Fed has just come through a period of nine interest rate hikes in the last three years. They've put it on hold for now. But do you think the Fed policy was appropriate given the economic circumstances? I mean, did they overshoot by one or two hikes? Or, you know, what's, what's your view of Fed the, policy? The, I think the Fed ha had done a, a pretty good job up until the fourth quarter mm -hmm. when they communicated that they were potentially going to be pretty tight here in 2019. Right. And that, to me, uh, was indeed not necessary given the inflationary backdrop, the improvement, low inflationary backdrop, improvement in, in productivity. Markets may have exaggerated uh, Fed Chair Powell's comments and, and raised rates more than maybe even he mm -hmm. uh, wanted to do. But nonetheless, the Fed was way too hawkish, as they say, in, in the fourth quarter. And he's totally um, uh, pulled back on that here in the, first, in, in the first quarter. Right. And so you think appropriately so? Uh, absolutely. The Fed did not need to kill it. We don't have an ingrained inflationary problem. Right. Uh, very difficult to find a lot of uh, real big excesses in this country. Uh, no, we definitely no, don't need a Fed raising interest rates aggressively. Uh, do you want to comment on the fact that the White House has been basically lobbying and the Fed hard and criticizing the Fed for 
not being more aggressive and easing even further, or well, it's, what's it, your sense about that? This is modus, this is normal. Okay. Uh, you've seen historically uh, from, from uh, Johnson in the 60s, uh, certainly Nixon in the 70s, even Reagan mm -hmm. uh, with, 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 with Volcker. So it's not historically been unusual. Uh, for Except not in the last like 20 years or so. It was, it's unusual um, in that. In, in, well, in that we've been in an easing cycle for so much that of that particular, true. for That's that particular true. period. It's not, yeah. it's not surprising, okay. Okay. but it's, it's not unusual in a tightening cycle to have a president uh, criticize, criticize the Fed. Right. Um, I, I want to go back to uh, the fact that the median uh, family income has increased and after decreasing for a number of years and, you know, has cr created the creation of this you know, of income inequality, which has, you know, been quite pronounced, the gap between them. Do you see any signs of that narrowing? Well, you are clearly seeing lower income wages increase faster than the median wage gain. They're growing about 5% right now versus versus 3%. So mm -hmm. uh, the key will be to, again, elongate the cycle. Right. The longer we can maintain this business cycle in a non-inflationary in environment, increases the odds we pull more people into the labor force. You've already started to see it. The unemployment rate for people with, with no high school diploma has declined dramatically, and the gap from roughly 10 to almost 5%. And the gap between that unemployment rate and people with a bachelor's degree is the smallest on record. So you are clearly hiring a broader footprint of people with different educational skills. Um, and for those people who are in that lower uh, quintile, are indeed seeing bigger wage increases. Um, the longevity of the bull market. We are now in historic, you know, record longevity territories as of last year. Um, any thoughts on the on the sustainability of the bull market from here? Well, the bull market in the stocks is going to be directly associated with the sustainability of the business cycle. Right. So the extent to which we don't see a recession in the foreseeable future, highest odds of recession we see are in the back half of 2021 at the earliest. And that will be a function of how successful this increase in productivity, more labor supply, is indeed keeping inflation at bay and preventing the Fed from necessarily uh, increasing interest rates again significantly. So we, from an economic perspective, we see a continuation of the expansion, which is obviously good news for the, for the stock market. What could derail the expansion and the bull market? Is, is it going to come from the economic sphere? Is it going to come from the political sphere? What, what is of concern to you or from, you know, overseas? Well, the business cycle definitely is not dead. And I would, no. I would, I would stick with, we can have big bumps in the economy because of geopolitical concerns or even political as uncertainty as we saw in the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. But the real big uh, classic reasons you have recessions is because you have extreme excesses, high right. inflation, too much investment, such as housing, too much uh, 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 debt, and as of now, those excesses uh, aren't there. But before it's over, I'm sure we will have them. Yeah. Um, Any idea where we might, the excesses <laughs> I, might develop? Will, I, I don't have. The corporate side of the equation, companies are borrowing money. As of now, their interest right. expense is pretty low. But I'm watching what uh, the consumer doesn't look like they're, they're going to be taking on a lot of debt. But my guess is it will be a combination of probably some inflation at some point down the road, because it classically is inflation, right. uh, that prompts the Fed to raise rates, and then, then also maybe, maybe too much uh, corporate debt. Mm -hmm. You have a long-standing career as a, an excellent top-ranked economist. You've been through a lot of cycles. Is there anything in this particular cycle that is of concern to you? We've heard all the positive things about it. Yeah. What are you worried about, if anything? Well, I do worry that this current election cycle, you're hearing a lot of 
the need for bigger government, socialistic tendencies. That will definitely crush if we were to ever elect someone with those with that kind of political leaning. You would definitely crush business confidence and in turn business investment. Quite frankly, everything I just talk about, talked about would, would, would probably end. All right, that would be very bad for the job market. Uh, there has been a lot of talk recently, it came from the headline from the IMF, was that, that whereas in 2018 we're in, we were in a synchronized uh, global growth situation, that in 2019, at least in the first half it turns out, they were talking about a synchronized global slowdown. Is that of concern to you? I think that was basically a one or two quarter phenomena, the global, right. global slowdown. Uh, it was quite frankly led by China. They tightened mm -hmm. pretty aggressively in 2017, early 18. That tightening and then on top of that, the trade uh, battle slowed China's growth pretty significantly. Um, but now since then, China has been easing very, very aggressively. Uh, we've counted 76 easing moves right. by, by China. And here now in uh, the second quarter, you're pretty clearly seeing actually uh, stronger data for the first quarter in China. And so that lagged effect of all that stimulus is finally starting to turn China's uh, economic activity. And that's going to be a plus for the global economy. At one point, I know that, that you had written about, I think it was a couple of years ago, the fact that the, that the, US, the U.S. economy was basically picking up steam and China's economy was slowing just a, a year or two ago. And that, in fact, that as far as it being a major driver of global growth, that the U.S. was basically uh, resuming that role again. Where do we stand in, in that competition? Uh, absolutely. You could almost say the U.S. is experiencing an overall renaissance from a global perspective. China's economy grew very quickly, if anything, too quickly. Mm -hmm. 15, 20 percent type growth rates on an average annual basis, unsustainably fast, and indeed put in a lot of excesses. And they're now unwinding that, those excess growth right. rates. And in turn, the, the economy is slowing down dramatically as a result of that. Cyclically, it's picking up because of the lag of the stimulus they've recently put in place. Secularly, they've shifted down from 20 to 10 to something probably in the mid-single digits. Around six, uh, I mean, that's what they're reporting. Well, they're reporting six, but it's probably actually much less than that. Okay. If you go through the month, which we do, it's right. probably closer to 3%, quite wow. frankly. Wow, really? Which is why, they, yeah, which is why they've eased as, as aggressively as they have. The economy slowed down to about 3% from, mm -hmm. from, if you take a lot of other data. Um, they're and, getting down to our level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After And they have way too much capacity, and they have to shut down right. capacity. In contrast, the United States has spent uh, a long time uh, improving our productivity, mm -hmm. becoming more efficient. Technology, we have our own energy. We have a lot of our own natural resources, including ag. And so I do think that the United States is indeed the tugboat of the world. We don't grow as quickly or as, or, or as, uh, as, as, as well, maybe we do, uh, as quickly as China, but indeed we are the tugboat of the world driving global growth. And so to the extent to which you know, China is slowing down, that may be a problem for certain economies, but come on, if the United States is indeed showing healthy, solid growth, that is a real big plus, not just for us, but indeed for the world. We are still the biggest economy in the world. Mm -hmm. Are they destined to overtake us? Absolutely not. Uh, the, we have the same concern about Japan in, 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 in the 80s, and, and Japan similarly uh, grew too quickly, put in way too many excesses, and since the 90s they've been unwinding those excesses, and to be sure. Uh, and China may not get as weak as Japan has gotten, but in no way uh, is, is, is China going to take over the United States. They, they have to unwind too much debt, too much investment. 
um, too much pollution. They don't have natural resources. Uh, quite frankly, it is a communist country. They, they, they understand the importance of, of businesses and jobs, but it's, it's, a, it's a managed economy, and, and you're seeing kind of the unwind of, of uh, bad uh, management decisions on their part. And so, no. Yes, that's <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where's the flag? So exactly right. It's a, you're the, probably the only person who's saying something like that, but I haven't asked too many people either. Um, the investment uh, implications of, of this growth yeah. that you're describing, it, it, it sounds to me that the U.S. is still a very good place to be invested and that the dollar-denominated assets should be um, a good place to be invested, as they have been since the you know financial crisis. Yeah. What What's your assessment? Well, to, to be sure, what what makes up the stock market are companies. The companies are increasingly improving their productivity, maintaining high profit margins. Uh, that at the end of the day, uh, those companies will do well. I would say you have to make sure you're investing in companies that are focused on productivity and improving uh, and improving their profit margins or supporting their profit margins. If you don't invest, if you don't focus on improving your productivity, you die. So I'm going to ask you for the one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. Do you have one of those companies that you might recommend? Or I, I, Again, I, one of my favorite themes is Middle America is my favorite emerging market. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would just highlight, look for companies that indeed are concentrated in the middle part of this country that will benefit uh, from the incremental employment growth that you're seeing, you're seeing there today. So companies that are investing in Middle America, uh, to uh, companies that are actually selling to the consumers who live uh, live in little live in middle of America. Nancy Lazar, thank you so much for joining us on Wealth Track from Cornerstone Macro. We appreciate your being here. Thank you. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is have faith in the resilience of the U.S. economy. Yes, there will eventually be a downturn, or more seriously, a recession, but age won't be the determining factor. As Lazar mentioned, contractions are caused by excesses in important sectors of the economy, overheating irrational exuberance, which caused prices and inflation to spike, resulting in a reaction from the Federal Reserve. When the Fed tightens, raises rates to cool things off, that causes the economy to slow or contract. Well, so far, the excesses are few, and the Fed is on hold with rate hikes. Get worried when excesses appear, and the Fed starts to tighten again. Next week, market-beating growth manager Howard Ward discusses why most of the fangs will continue to flourish, which is why he owns them in his Gamco growth fund. In this week's extra feature on WealthTrack.com, Nancy Lazar discusses why she has become an advocate for hiring ex-convicts. We look forward to continuing to connect with you on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend, and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.